volunteers in exploring our neighborhood with several gift cards to shop in our community and a meal and a night stay right next door to the station. Donate at kboo.fm slash give today to win. See full rules and details at kboo.fm slash 2019 raffle. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO listener members and support from Cotton Club Natural Beds and Furniture, women-owned since 1981, providing sustainable wood furniture, locally handcrafted futons, latex mattresses, and more, using organic and natural materials. The Cotton Club showroom is located at 701 Northeast Broadway in Portland, online at cottonclubfutons.com. From KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, North Korea is disputing President Donald Trump's claim that it insisted on a lifting of all sanctions as a condition for a deal. Early on Thursday, Trump walked out of talks taking place in Hanoi, Vietnam, saying, sometimes you have to walk. He explained, basically, they wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety, but we couldn't do that. Hours later, at a press conference in the middle of the night, North Korean spokespeople said they had been asking for lifting of sanctions imposed since March 2016, a demand they had been making in lower-level talks for weeks and which should not have come as a surprise to the U.S. According to Associated Press, President Kim Jong-un had asked only for partial sanctions relief in exchange for shutting down the North's main nuclear complex. In essence, Mr. Kim was seeking a relief of those sanctions that have hurt ordinary people, not a lifting of sanctions on armaments. AP also explained that, quote, Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho said the North was also ready to offer in writing a permanent halt of the country's nuclear and intercontinental ballistics missile tests. Before the summit, Trump had said he would be happy to make a deal if North Korea agreed to stop all nuclear testing. The GOP is upset with his president on the case of Otto Warmbier, an American student who died in North Korea in 2017. During his summit with North Korea, Trump dismissed President Kim Jong-un's role in Warmbier's death, believing that Kim knew nothing about it. Trump had said, he tells me that he didn't know about it and I will take him at his word. I don't believe that he would have allowed that to happen. It just wasn't to his advantage to allow that to happen. Those prisons are rough. They're rough places and bad things happened. But I really don't believe that he, I don't believe that he knew about it. Republican Senator Rob Portman, who chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, responded angrily that, quote, we can't be naive about what they did to Otto, about the brutal nature of the regime that would do this to an American citizen. Several other Republicans expressed similar anger. President Trump is also facing pushback from members of his own party on the matter of his declaration of a national emergency. Republican Senator Lamar Alexander on Thursday spoke on the floor of the Senate and hinted that he might become the 51st senator to oppose Trump's national emergency declaration in a bill that has already passed the House. Three of his Republican colleagues plan to join Democrats in the Senate and he could become the fourth, pushing the bill into passage. This is what Senator Alexander said. I support what the president wants to do on border security, but I do not support the way he has been advised to do it. There has never been an instance where a president of the United States has asked for funding, Congress has refused it, and the president has then used the National Emergency Act to justify spending the money anyway. That's Lamar Alexander on Thursday implying that he may become the fourth Republican in the Senate to oppose Trump's emergency declaration. The House Intelligence Committee held a closed-door hearing with Trump's former attorney Michael Cohen on Thursday. 
after the hearing, Committee Chair Adam Schiff held a press conference explaining that Mr. Cohen would be returning for more testimony on March 6th. And we very much appreciate Mr. Cohen's uh, cooperation. Uh, he has obviously had three very long days. Uh, he'll be returning on March 6th for additional testimony. Uh, and uh, I think we all feel it was a very productive uh, interview today. Um, where he was able to shed light on a lot of issues that are very core to our investigation, uh, and we were able to drill down in, uh, in great detail. Um, so March 6th uh, will be the next part of his testimony. Uh, the following week on March 14th, we'll have an open interview with Felix Sater on Moscow Trump Tower. Uh, That's Adam Schiff, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, explaining that Cohen will return for mo more testimony on March 6th and that one of Trump's other colleagues, Felix Sater, will be called in to testify. The House Oversight Committee is expanding its investigation into President Trump and his colleagues based on the many allegations that Cohen made at the public hearing on Wednesday. Committee Chair Elijah Cummings said to reporters on Thursday, all you have to do is follow the transcript. If there were names that were mentioned or records that were mentioned during the hearing, we're going to take a look at all of that. We'll go through, we'll figure out who we want to talk to, and we'll bring them in. The list of people could include Trump Organization CFO Alan Weiselberg, as well as Trump's children Ivanka and Donald Jr. The New York Times on Thursday published an expose of how President Trump last year overrode the concerns of intelligence officers and demanded security clearance for his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. According to the Times, Mr. Trump's decision in May so troubled senior administration officials that at least one, the White House chief of staff at the time, John F. Kelly, wrote a contemporaneous internal memo about how he had been ordered to give Mr. Kushner the top secret clearance. Additionally, the Times found that the White House counsel at the time, Donald F. McGahn II, also wrote an internal memo outlining the concerns that had been raised about Mr. Kushner, including by the CIA, and how Mr. McGahn had recommended that he not be given top-secret clearance. Trump had earlier said in public that he played no role in Kushner being given clearance. Based on several sources, the Times determined that officials had raised questions about his own and his family's real estate business ties to foreign governments and investors, and about initially unreported contacts he had with foreigners. The issue also generated criticism of Mr. Trump for having two family members serve in official capacities in the West Wing. In other news, Acting Chair of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, Andrew Wheeler, was confirmed as the agency's permanent head on Thursday. The Senate, in a largely partisan vote of 52 to 47, voted to confirm the former coal lobbyist, who's been credited with heading most of the rolling back of environmental protections at the EPA. Senator Susan Collins was the only Republican to vote against Wheeler, saying, quote, the policies he has supported as acting administrator are not in the best interest of our environmental and public health, particularly given the threat of climate change to our nation. More than 30 women leaders from around the world have written an open letter decrying the erosion of women's rights and the rise of dictatorial regimes globally. The letter was signed by such leaders as Christiana Figueres, former executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, Ethiopian President Saleh Work Zodi, former Irish President Mary Robinson, Helen Clark, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, and Irina Bokova, a Bulgarian politician. And finally, Afghan women are worried about their rights being traded away in negotiations with the Taliban. More than 700 women from all over Afghanistan gathered this week at a conference in Kabul to de demand that the U.S.-backed Afghan government pursue peace with the Taliban, but not at the expense of their rights. And that does it for our headlines today. After Michael Cohen's bombshell public testimony to the House Oversight Committee, how did Republicans respond? How did the right-wing media cover it? And what will come out of Cohen's allegations? On our show today, Katie Sullivan of Media Matters for America will help to answer those questions. Then we'll turn to Shani Robinson and Anna Simonton, co-authors of a new book called None of the Above, the untold story of the Atlanta public schools cheating scandal, corporate greed, and the criminalization of educators. Stay tuned.
KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica radio stations and affiliates nationwide. President Donald Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, spent a third consecutive day in hearings on Thursday, this time in a closed-door session with the House Intelligence Committee. Cohen's Wednesday hearing at the House Oversight Committee was public and widely televised. During his riveting 30-minute opening remarks, Cohen accused the president of being a racist, a con man, and a cheat. Many Democrats that questioned him afterwards honed in on several of the points he raised about Trump's business practices, the hush money payments that Trump made while in office, his charitable organization, his taxes, and more. But Republicans focused entirely on whether Cohen was to be trusted since he had been convicted of lying to Congress. How did the right-wing media cover the Cohen testimony? And what, if anything, will come out of these historic hearings? We turn to Katie Sullivan. She is the Deputy Director for Rapid Response at Media Matters for America. Welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. So uh, first, uh, we had, of course, wall-to-wall coverage of the Cohen hearings on Wednesday. Uh, But since your organization monitors the right-wing media, um, can you begin by giving us a sense of how the right-wing media covered the Cohen hearings? How did Fox News in particular cover the Cohen hearings? Sure. So a lot of the coverage mainly was just them attacking his credibility. And, you know, nobody thinks that Michael Cohen doesn't have a credibility problem, but he did address it and he did come with documentation of the things that he was saying to the best of his ability. And, you know, more specifically, they are very selective about what they want to attack him on, right? And so, you know, they'll say he's a liar, you know, blah, 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 blah but they'll only talk about some of the allegations that he talked about and not the ones that are most damaging for Trump, right? Yeah, so it seems, of course, like the most damaging allegation that came out very early in the hearing when Cohen actually um, presented his opening statements was the check written by Trump to reimburse Mm -hmm. Michael Cohen while he was president, a $35,000 check, a check that was submitted into evidence and one of many, many checks, other checks we found out were signed by Trump's sons. Initially, we had been told that that was just part of a retainer. And then we found out those are just reimbursements for the hush money payments. So this is the big bombshell that dropped during the hearing. We'd known a day or two before the hearing that it would be dropped. And it seems as though Republicans just didn't want to touch that one. Yeah, they don't want to talk about that <laughs> at all. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. They'll say, you know, he's a liar. He can't be trusted. And right, then they literally the had a sentence, giant sign, liar, liar, pants on fire, which just seems so juvenile. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, they'll say he's a liar. He can't be trusted. And then in the very next sentence, they'll say, but, you know, the one thing he told the truth on was that there was no collusion. <laughs> mm. And so they're very, you know, they're cherry picking what they're talking about. They're not talking about the check. They're talking about how, uh, you know, he said that he didn't know of any direct evidence of collusion. And, you know, they're also saying, like, this was only a distraction from uh, the North Korea summit. This was his crimes weren't really crimes. Uh, This actually helps Trump, doesn't hurt him. Uh, You know, they tried to tie it to the Clintons repeatedly because, you know, that's always a go-to nice handy attack. Um, (laughs) Right. There was much... There was much made of uh, Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, who is a longtime Clinton lawyer, and several Republicans tried to um, make the connection that this was all orchestrated by the Clintons because Lanny Davis asked for the hearing, orchestrated it, made Elijah Cummings, the committee chair, hold the hearings as if Mr. Cummings doesn't have his own agency. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I think really what all this gets to right now is that they want this to be a media circus rather than a discussion of the actual merits or the substance about this. Because if it's a media circus, they can say, you know, it doesn't matter. This is all just baked in. The media just hate Trump. And if they have to talk about the substance, they have to talk about the fact that the president got accused of a lot of crimes. (laughs) And they don't want to talk about that. Hmm. So the other uh, major line of questioning seemed to be that um, the Republicans 
kept pushing Cohen to admit he wasn't going to get a book deal out of the whole story, that if he did get a book deal, he would donate all the proceeds to charity or that he would get a movie deal. This, I mean, uh, there must have been some sort of set of talking points distributed ahead of time because there were about three or four things that they kept hammering on. And one of them was some sort of fame that Michael Cohen was going to get out of this whole thing that he was desperate for. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, first of all, everybody writes books. So, you know, sure, that's just how things work. But also, it, again, it just it doesn't deal with the actual substance. They don't want to talk about that. Uh, they just don't want to have a good faith conversation about it. And you know what? Michael Cohen is going to jail, right? Like, he's already pretty notorious. He's not looking for fame right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if the, anything... The, it, yeah, the implication was that he did this hearing or or pushed for this year, volunteered to testify at this hearing so that he could get a book deal out of it. Um, the other thing was he was just bitter he didn't get a job at the White House. What did you make of this? You know, I just think it's irrelevant. <laughs> uh, that's what they want to make it about. You know, they don't want to talk about, like I said, the substance. Like, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that it, truly matters what whether or not Michael Cohen wanted a White House job. The fact is that things played out the way they did. And, you know, the president of the United States committed crimes, allegedly, not just before he was the president, but while he was a sitting president. You know, it's a sideshow whether or not Michael Cohen wanted a White House job. Um, but, you know, I mean, they said that, that, you know, it's up for debate, but it wasn't even the only bit of, you know, potentially not true talking points that the Republicans on the committee kept referring to. There was a Washington Post fact check of the false comments made during that hearing. And almost all, if not all of them, were comments from Republican committee members. Uh, It wasn't a fact check of Republican committee members. It was a fact check of the hearing. And the only statements that it even included were Republican committee members. you know, they they uh, tried to say that he, Michael Cohen, did a violation of the Foreign Agent Registration Act because he, you know, didn't tell them that he, you know, lobbied for foreign entities. He's not required to disclose foreign entities. He's only required to discuss business he has with foreign governments. And, you know, they said that. They tried to attack him on that. They said that they were going to make a criminal referral on that. And it's completely ridiculous, but it's been on Fox News all day. (laughs) Right. Uh, In fact, our Republican lawmakers, uh, we now are hearing, have asked the Justice Department to investigate Cohen for perjury. They seem so uninterested in Trump's lies or Trump's uh, crimes, potential crimes. Um, The other aspect of it is um, that uh, this particular uh, hearing also ended up showcasing Trump's racism, which also I understand Fox News wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Um, And the Republicans tried to do some damage control uh, by trotting out a black woman named Lynn Patton when Cohen accused um, Trump of being a virulent racist. Um, This didn't go down very well among some of the women of color on the Democratic side, did it? It did not. Uh, They called him out for it and you know, respect to them. It was absolutely a ridiculous stunt. It was a racist stunt. And what you have heard on Fox all day is them actually saying it was, you know, racist for them to call Mark Meadows a racist. Well, he has kind of a history of racism. He said that Obama should go back to Kenya and stay there. So like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a racist who's defending another racist by using a black woman as a prop, which... Right is a bad, bad look. It's, you know, it's only something that happens. You know, you you mentioned that it was the women of color on this committee that called him out for it. 
that's maybe what happens when your party doesn't have that many women of color. Mm, right. Good point. Uh, it was first Representative Brenda Lawrence who, who raised the issue, then um, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and then finally Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who perhaps had the strongest statements, which caused such defensiveness from Mark Meadows that he, you know, sort of started uh, getting very flabbergasted. It was interesting if you think about it. Essentially, um, they this whole trial of I'm not a racist because some of my best friends are black kept playing out, uh, you know, so Trump's not a racist because he his best friend is a black woman named Lynn Patton. When he was called out for being racist for doing that, Mark Meadows literally responded with the exact same thing. Some of my nieces and nephews are people of color. I mean, it is almost stereo. I mean, it is stereotypical of, you know, them to be doing this, but it's also just you would think that we would all be past this now in 2019. And when you realize that we're not, you kind of laugh and cry at the same time. <laughs> I was crafting, yes. Yes, yes. I like that, crafting. <laughs> Um, so, so, so you had uh, another uh, powerful member of Congress, and, and it, a lot of the powerful moments came near the end of the hearing when you had the very bold, younger, new, more newly elected members of Congress who were on the committee do a lot of the questioning. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's questioning was really interesting, right? She seemed to focus in on the Trump golf course near her district, or in her district, I believe it is, and the tax subsidies that he received. Now he's essentially pocketed all the profit. And many have suggested that she laid the groundwork for subpoenaing Trump's tax returns. This was quite brilliant. Again, the Republicans nor Fox News seem to have touched that at all. Not yet. Not really. So there was a little bit of a mention of it earlier, and it was from Fox analyst, legal analyst Andrew Napolitano, who was a judge at one point who said that the only reason that Democrats could possibly want Trump's tax returns would be to humiliate him and to torment him. Only possible reason would be to torment the Trump for not releasing his tax returns. Hmm. Um, that's really the only mention of it I've seen. And you know, it wasn't just the tax returns that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really laid the groundwork for, and others did as well. It was also laying the groundwork to call in members of Trump's inner circle, the, you know, Alan Weisselberg, other members of the Trump organization, Trump's children. And this is also only what we saw from the one day of public testimony. There are two other days of testimony that we don't see and we don't know what else they're laying the groundwork for. So this is not bode well for the president or anybody in his orbit. Right. So Tuesday was the closed door testimony with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Thursday, the closed door testimony with the House Intelligence Committee. The only public testimony was the House Oversight Committee hearing on Wednesday. And I'm so glad you brought up the other people in the Trump orbit because Alan Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump organization's name, came up re repeatedly. And of course, the Trump children. Um, what and, and so many people have been asking about this, right, who watched the Cohen hearings um, ask, so what's going to come out of this in the end? Will this actually lead to anything? Of course, with the Democrats controlling the House, it at the House level can lead to something. Um, are we going to see subpoenas? Are we going to see um, charges um, being brought against or at least subpoenas and, and calls for t testimony from people like Alan Weiselberg coming out of this? We'll definitely see testimony. And the more public testimony, the better, because this really is one of those things. You know, most Americans at this point know that there's something fishy going on with the president and his orbit. Uh, but, you know, the public needs to be convinced. And so the more public testimony, the better. Um, and, you know, what I really think that we all need to do and, you know, hold our leaders accountable to do, hold the media accountable for is this narrative that, well, the things that Trump come out about Trump, they don't matter. It's all baked in. Everybody all knows, knows this all about him anyway. You know, this doesn't even matter. And that's the thing that we need to push back on because it does matter. I mean, these are, you know, some of the things that came up was, you know, conspiracy against the United States, lying to Congress, lying to the special counsel, uh, you know, lying on his tax returns misusing funds for a charitable organization, these matter, you know? And if we just say, well, it's baked in, what are you gonna do? Then the public sentiment, you know, that is not really the narrative that we would be hearing for anybody else. 
And it's not something that we should just accept. Right. And yeah. that's all public, you know, sentiment and, you know, feeling, though. That's not what's happening in the legal system. <laughs> you know, we can say all we want, you know, what's actually going to happen. The Southern District of New York knows what's going to happen. <laughs> they are, you know, prosec- there were, uh, I think Cohen referenced a, uh, an investigation into Trump that we didn't even know about. And that was, you know, in addition to the ones that we already did, which is how many, three or four? <laughs> so we have a situation now where there's all of these uh uh, things swirling around. I'm gra- glad you brought up the Trump Organization one because that was another thing that Ale- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez brought up um, or picked up on on what Cohen was discussing with the purchase of a painting uh, and the misuse of this nonprofit status of his organ of the charitable foundation. Um, but uh, do you think that uh, if all of this is out in the open now, the big thing on people's minds is will this push Democrats to pursue impeachment more greatly? I think it might. Uh, I think that there will definitely be a growing call for impeachment. Whether or not it actually happens, I think remains to be seen. But I think that the calls for it will push because we are just going to find out about more and more behavior that is simply unacceptable from anybody, but especially the most powerful man in the world. What do you make of uh, Trump's responses? Um, while he, while Cohen was speaking at the hearing on Wednesday, Trump was not even in the country. He was in Vietnam um, mm-hmm. at the North Korea talks, which ultimately failed. But uh, at a press conference, when uh, reporters had the chance to start questioning the president, one of the first questions came from a reporter about the Cohen hearings and Trump basically ignored that and then it looks like they sort of shut down the the press access yeah i mean he <laughs> took questions from a lot of uh you know he took questions from hannity but he also took questions from chinese state media russian state media and he took questions from other legitimate outlets but i think that was the only cohen question he got or maybe the only cohen question he allowed himself to get uh he doesn't really want to talk about it. The only thing that he wants to talk about is how, you know, there's this giant witch hunt against him and everything is a hoax. And, you know, Michael Cohen is a liar, but he doesn't connect the dots to all the other people who have surrounded him, who have been indicted, who are going to jail. You know, it's not like Michael Cohen is an isolated incident here. Right. (laughs) And that was another thing that came up at the hearing when the Republicans uh, on Wednesday kept attempting to showcase Cohen as a liar. And then at one point, I can't remember which GOP congressman it was who brought up um, all of the people that have been indicted or left in disgrace or been fired. To me, that was a an implication on the president not on all of those people or not certainly not on the democrats or cohen if if there is a president who is who is whose uh, administration is so racked with such instability that says something about the president right it sure does and you know this is pure speculation i cannot say what that congressman actually you know knows or believes in his heart but What we are seeing in this country is two different versions of reality kind of setting in. And one, I would argue, is based on facts, and the other is a creation of right-wing media. And if you exist only in that bubble, and that's the only information that you get, then a lot of what you heard was actually coded language, you know? They have these narratives and these talking points, and they repeat them over and over and over on Fox and in other places. And, you know, you start to hear all these people and the connection in your brain is, oh, that's the person who screwed over Trump. When, no, it was the guy that Trump put in a position even though he knew that it was you know, bad news. Interestingly um, enough, Katie, at the very near the very end of the hearing, um, GOP members of uh, Congress on the committee asked uh, Elijah Cummings to put a number of uh, news reports into the congressional record. My producer pointed out to me today that um, the majority of those were 
among outlets that the GOP and Trump have slammed as fake news, you know, Huffington Post and Mother Jones and the Washington Post, but in Salon, but when it uh, seems to benefit their story or, or um, be consistent with their story, they want it in the congressional record. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, let's not forget Trump straight up directly told an interviewer one time that the reason he attacks the media is so that when they report bad things about him, that people won't believe them. He actually said that. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this, you know, he attacks these people, he attacks these media outlets who are, you know, trying to do their job, whether or not they do a great job all the time. Um, I would argue that mainstream media has a Trump obsession problem and likes to make a skeptical of things, a spectacle of things. But, you know, for the most part, they are, you know, reporters and journalists who are trying to do a good faith, good job. And the reason he attacks them is because he doesn't like how they make him look. And, you know, he's trying to discredit people who are reporting the truth. Hmm. Um, one story that seemed to just kind of be swept under the rug, and I'm not sure if it came up during the hearings. I tried to watch as much of the hearings on Wednesday as possible. But the, on the eve of the hearings, you had a Congress, a Republican congressman, issue a blackmail style threat in public on Twitter against Michael Cohen, Matt Gates, who literally said, you know, watch out, um, you're, 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 uh, you know, your father, he, he talked about his father-in-law, his wife, implied that Cohen was having affairs. It was horrifying. Um, and no one seems to have done much about it. It made a few headlines on Tuesday, and then it just kind of disappeared. I'm just, I keep telling myself, what if this was a Democrat? What if the president in question was Obama? If this was a Democrat, Fox News would be howling. It would be wall-to-wall coverage. We wouldn't hear anything else. It would be coming up for years and years and years. But, you know, the reality is a lot of people are desensitized to that kind of language because Trump does it. You yes. know, Trump tried to witness tamper with Michael Cohen. And so this is what happens when he kind of degrades our entire national discourse. Katie, give out the website for Media Matters where people can find out more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can find us at mediamatters.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter at MMFA. And we'll post a link to that from our website. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Katie Sullivan is the Deputy Director for Rapid Response at Media Matters. We've been discussing the impact of the Cohen hearings and its coverage in the right-wing media. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, subscribe to our audio podcast on iTunes, and our video channel on Vimeo. Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. More than 10 years ago, dozens of teachers in the Atlanta public school system in Georgia were accused of participating in a widespread test score cheating scandal. Most of them took plea deals, but 11 educators decided to go to trial to maintain their innocence. They were charged with racketing and conspiracy, the same charges that are brought up against those involved in organized crime. The old black teachers were at the center of a national story that showcased educator criminality, but not the failings of the educational system. Moralistic news coverage and analysis followed with lots of finger wagging. Now, years later, many of the teachers insist they are innocent. Not only have they struggled to rebuild their lives, but the Atlanta public school system has also not fully recovered. A new book aims to correct the record on the story and draw attention to the broader system of how our system... Uh, 
A new book aims to correct the record on the story and draw attention to the broader issue of how our system has failed both educators and students. My guests are Shani Robinson and Anna Simonton, co-authors of None of the Above, the untold story of the Atlanta public schools cheating scandal, corporate greed and the criminalization of educators. Welcome Shani and Anna. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So uh, many of us remember this story um, that sort of started unfolding years ago, and it has been a sort of abstract story. And I feel like in this book for the first time, we humanize the characters because, Shani, you yourself were one of the uh, 11 educators who refused to take a plea deal, went to trial and ended up being convicted. You were sentenced to a year in prison. And here you are having written a book about this. Well, um, I'm going to actually begin with Anna to ask you to give us a very brief thumbnail sketch of the story of what happened that led to the charges and the arrests. And then, Shani, I want to focus on you personally. Anna, can you give us that outline? Yeah, so the what came to be known as the Atlanta Public Schools cheating scandal began with a series of articles by Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporters in 2008 and throughout 2009, looking first at suspicious uh, test score jumps on these retests. Um, these are, the tests in Georgia were called the CRCT. These are uh, standardized tests mandated under the No Child Left Behind Act. All states had to administer standardized tests uh, and try to improve test scores every year, uh, sort of mission impossible that really led to widespread cheating nationwide. So that was the context for what was going on in Atlanta. There had been many of these cheating cases, um, but in this particular instance, the governor at the time, Sonny Perdue, um, did in response to those uh, news reports, conducted a statewide wrong to right erasure analysis, found that 20% of schools in Georgia had classrooms that were flagged for just improbably high numbers of what they called wrong to right erasures. Students uh, erasing the wrong answer, filling in the right answer so many times that it didn't seem it could actually be the students doing that themselves. School districts that were implicated had to do internal investigations for Atlanta Public Schools and one other school district, Doherty County. The governor deemed those investigations to be uh, insufficient had a statewide investigation, marshaled the GBI agents, Georgia Bureau of Investigations, to look more deeply. Um, in Atlanta, they implicated a number of schools, uh, hundreds of educators, ended up uh, the local district attorney of Fulton County, where Atlanta is located, in March of 2013, indicted 35 educators, all but one were black, no white teachers, even though white teachers had been implicated in that state investigation. Um, so that's kind of what led to what you just described in terms of the, the trial and the convictions. Right. So, Shani, let's uh, talk about you personally. You, I understand, had only been on the job three years when you got um, caught up in this. Um, tell us your story. What even brought you into teaching um, and, and uh, what had been your goal as a teacher in the Atlanta public school system? Yes, I was actually brought into teaching through a program called Teach for America. I actually didn't major in elementary education or teaching. And so through the program, I worked in Atlanta Public Schools for three years. And the second year that I was teaching later becomes the year in question. I was a first grade teacher. And as a first grade teacher, my test scores from the state standardized test, the CRCT, which is the Criterion Reference Competency Test. First and second grade test scores did not count toward adequate yearly progress, which were the benchmarks set by the federal government that students had to meet, schools had to meet each year. And they also didn't count toward the district targets, which were benchmarks imposed by the Atlanta Public Schools Board and administration. And so that year, there was the, on the last day of testing, there was a paraprofessional, an assistant teacher, that came to my room to relieve me from my students. And she told me to go to the computer lab, that the testing coordinator had actually called for me to go to the computer lab to erase stray marks off of my students' test booklets. And so when I got into the computer lab, there were first and second grade teachers, as well as a testing coordinator in the lab. And she handed me my test booklets and told me to erase the stray marks and also to fix the illegible handwriting on my students' demographic section. 
And so I sat behind one of the computers. I erased the stray marks. I fixed the illegible handwriting. And then about 20 minutes later, I handed my test booklets back to the testing coordinator. And so I thought that was the end of the story. It was pretty much another boring round day of testing until October of 2010. Now at this time, I actually was not working for Atlanta Public Schools. I started working for a counseling agency. And I got a phone call from a GBI agent, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And so he convinces me to meet with him. Um, strangely, in a mall parking lot was where I met him. But At a mall parking lot? A mall parking lot was where I met him, yes. And so he told me that there had been an erasure analysis done. And basically what the erasure analysis, there was actually a statewide erasure analysis done. And so they were looking at how many times did someone go from the wrong answer to the right answer. Because after a certain amount of times, it's statistically improbable that that would actually happen. And so he said, well, in your classroom, there were high levels of wrong to right erasures. And he says, can you explain this? And I said, no, I can't explain this. And then he said, he asked me, were there any administrators or the principal, did anyone place any pressure on me to change my students' answers? And I said, no. And then he pulled out a pre-written voluntary statement form that was basically saying, you don't have any knowledge about cheating and you didn't cheat. And he asked me to sign this form. It was already pre-written. And so later, the thing about this form is that there were other educators because that same day that the GBI um, interrogated me, they came into the schools and teachers were pulled from their classrooms and they were interrogated and there were no attorneys present. And many teachers signed that form. Later, teachers were charged with false statements and writings, which is a felony. Some teachers for signing that form. And so it so was, it, was really it almost sounds like entrapment or attempted entrapment. And we would later learn, Shawnee would learn that um, mm -hmm. one of her former coworkers who was in that computer lab erasing stray marks um, under pressure from the GBI, um, after changing her story many times and initially saying, no, I don't know what you're talking about. We weren't cheating. We were just erasing stray marks. Uh, finally said, uh, acute, wrongfully accused Shawnee and uh, their other co-workers of uh, having erased answers during that time and was given immunity for that. So the GBI was um, interrogating teachers over and over again when they didn't get what they wanted the first time saying, you need to cooperate and you know th this could result in some serious charges, but if you talk to us, you won't ever face any charges. And even during the trial, when she later came to testify against us in the trial, they asked her, well, why did you cheat? And she said she cheated to meet the district targets. As a second grade teacher, there were no district targets. The district targets did not exist for second grade. And so it makes me wonder what she told to say that because she was a veteran teacher. So it's hard to believe that she didn't know that her test scores didn't count um, and that there were no targets. So Shani, this particular story has been viewed through a very broad lens and those details that you're sharing with us now didn't really get clarified until so many years later. Now with your book, we're hearing more about it. What was the impetus at that time to pursue this? The the 11 of you who were charged were charged with the same things that you would charge organized crime mobsters with, the racketeering and criminal uh, charges uh, and conspiracy charges. Um, what was the impetus behind this push to convict um, you and your fellow teachers? You know, I really think they were trying to, in a sense, scapegoat educators for system failures hmm. that I believe that education officials and policymakers should be held accountable for. And even the thing about the RICO charges, I didn't really even know what RICO was or racketeering was. At my school, we didn't meet our district targets, so we've never received any money. And so 
not only did I not receive any money, my test scores did not count, but that was the premise of the racketeering charge. Many of us never received any money, but my bond was set at $200,000 and it was one of the lowest. There were other bonds that were set in the millions. And so the media portrayal was that we had gotten all of this money, but it was a complete falsehood. And so I really think they were just trying to make examples out of us. And again, all black educators, the 11 that ultimately were charged and, and convicted. Um, Anna, tell us about the uh, Dr. Beverly Hall, or uh, Superintendent Beverly Hall. She uh, was also um, charged and convicted, um, and you write about her in the book quite a bit. Yes, um, so she, she tragically uh, died before uh, the trial, before she was ever able to, to face these charges. And so we, we don't know what her defense would have been. Um, but she came to Atlanta in 1999 because the uh, business community, sort of spearheaded by the Chamber of Commerce, was looking for a superintendent to um, specifically to boost test scores uh, because there was gentrification going on in Atlanta. They called it revitalization, and a lot of that spurred by the 1996 Olympics. And there was this idea that has continued to take hold that um, that school test scores are an important factor in making a neighborhood marketable. So these inner city neighborhoods um, that have been disinvested from, from by um, you know the wealthy sort of white power brokers in the city are now being returned to by those same uh, uh, people to try to profit from the sort of remaking of what are now historically, ha- had been historically black neighborhoods. Um, and that the schools were a linchpin in that process. And we see, you know, newspaper articles from that time period saying, you know, can uh, can we make these schools good enough that people will want to live in the city again? And by people, we're really talking about white people because black people were already living in the city at that time. So um, the Chamber of Commerce does this search and uh, recruits Dr. Beverly Hall from Newark, New Jersey, where she was superintendent uh, at that time. And they said they were looking for a CEO who would uh, sort of helm Atlanta Public Schools as if it were a business and that the students and uh, parents are are the customers. So it's very much part of what we uh, look at as the corporate uh, education reform movement, where throughout the 1990s, um, there's this increasing sort of privatization um, of public education, uh, eventually through charter schools and vouchers and things like that. But even just in the language that people are using and sort of the ideology of what are schools even for um, is changing at that time. And so Beverly Hall was very much supported by, and um, and I think her, her policies were shaped by the business community that ultimately um, disappeared from the scene once the scandal broke, um, did not take any accountability for their role in uh, pushing for the kind of high stakes testing and other reforms that really created the conditions for this. Shani, what went through your mind? I mean, because this book that we're talking about is really your story, none of the above, the untold story of the Atlanta public schools, cheating scandal, corporate greed, and the criminalization of educators. What went through your mind when you realized you were basically being, um, you know, cast as somebody who was participating in some conspiracy to change test scores just so you could get a bonus, neither of which, in I from what you've said was true. I was devastated. And and you just had a baby. I was pregnant during the entire eight-month trial. Oh, so you you were pregnant during the trial, I see. This was the longest criminal trial in Georgia history, which says something just about Mm -hmm. the uh, resources that the prosecutors decided were worthwhile to criminalize teachers. So, yeah, you found out you were pregnant as trafficking. They, they allowed, I understand, journalists in the courtroom and all these images of educators, black educators with their hands behind their back um, with, with handcuffs on, um, made it all through the media. So you were right, right there. Right. And they were treating the trial like it was the crime of the century. We were basically turned into monsters. A lot of people um, did not even want to be associated with us. And it's interesting. We just um, telling people about the book and sharing my story. A lot of people have asked us, you know, well, why didn't this person help? Why didn't this organization help? And it's really because of how we were, we were portrayed in the media. I think people were just even afraid to reach out to us. There were a lot of people who felt like 
this was wrong, but they didn't quite know how it was wrong. They didn't have all the details. And that's why this book is so important because we're sharing all of those details and letting people know this is what really happened. So ultimately, of course, the school system and this intense push for standardized testing um, and this, um, you know, seems to have been part of the problem, but also in general, uh, holding holding teachers accountable, teacher accountability. We've heard these buzzwords for over a decade now, right? And, and I'm wondering if you can um, put into perspective how the framing, especially by politicians and to some extent the media, has been responsible for this, that the teachers are to be held accountable. Teacher, uh, you know, have to have merit-based pay. And if there's a, a whiff of cheating, it's teachers that are responsible. Um, and, and of course, Teachers in general are, um, they care about their children, about the students in their classroom. They also happen to often be unionized. We've seen this wave of teacher strikes around the country because of the low pay. Um, Teachers seem to be the most loved public servants by their communities and yet the most hated public servants by politicians. Yeah, and in the book, we go all the way back to Brown v. Board of Education to look at the roots of some of what's going on today in the white backlash to desegregation, um, in which white parents began pushing for um, public funding for private schools so that they could continue to send their children to all white schools and avoid desegregation, and how that really laid a lot of the groundwork um, for really a much broader uh, sort of the conservative movement that has been pushing for smaller government, disinvesting from the public sector, um, not only in education, but across the board. But in terms of that push in education, um, the accountability became a way for um, people who wanted to, and I, I've mentioned conservatives, but it wasn't only conservatives at this point. I mean, it's also coming from the Democratic Party, this idea that, um, we need to hold teachers accountable. We need to make sure that we shouldn't be putting uh, resources, money, funding, public funding into schools unless we know that those resources are being used accordingly. Um, and how do we do that? And the answer in the early 1990s emerged as uh, high stakes testing, that these standardized tests are what is going to tell us whether the public funding that we're putting into schools is being used appropriately. Um, there's all sorts of things wrong with that in terms of uh, whether how much these tests can really tell you about what students are learning, what's going on in the classroom. Um, and it begins to be wielded as a, as a weapon against teachers. As you said, teachers unions are some of the most strongest and have been some of the strongest unions in the country. Um, and so to begin this sort of vilification of teachers um, by putting accountability onto them as if there aren't so many other factors that create the conditions in schools from, and we look at in the book at um, you know things going on in Atlanta's communities, Atlanta's black communities throughout this time period from urban renewal to the drug wars, all the ways that black communities have been under attack and how that has affected those schools. Um, so placing all of the responsibility on teachers is, um, is a problem and it's very heartening to see teachers standing up the way that they are right now and saying um, that teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. We can no longer separate the two. And we believe that, you know, we can't talk about, there was so much talk about, oh, these teachers cheated the children. Um, there's so much emphasis put on children as if the relationship between children and their teachers and their parents and their communities aren't intertwined when they are. And we need to be talking about how all of those things work together. So, Shani, tell us then what happened. You were essentially ordered to pay a thousand dollar fine, uh, probation, and one year in prison. You had just had your baby at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I did not accept the district attorney's sentencing agreement, even though the judge he really tried to bully us into accepting the district attorney's sentencing agreement. Initially, the judge said that he would grant us. First, first time offender status and an appeal bond. And so once he learned that my co-defendants were not going to accept the district attorney's sentencing agreement, which included giving up your constitutional right to appeal, and that's 
probably why they didn't want to accept it. But the judge took it back. He said, well, I'm not granting an appeal bond and I'm not giving you first time offender status. And so our attorneys pushed back on that and they said, well, judge, you already said that you would. And he said, well, I guess I'm just an Indian giver. And wow. these are the types of things that we had to deal with. There was a situation in which the judge actually tried to assist a state witness with identifying one of my co-defendants, Tamara Cotman, who is currently in prison right now. But this woman was told that she could walk around the courtroom and look for Ms. Cotman. And so as she begins to walk around the courtroom, the judge called out to her and said, you're getting cold. And so the woman turned around and started walking in the opposite direction. And she never recognized my co-defendant and eventually returned to the witness stand. And so in my mind, I was thinking, did the judge just play the hot and cold game with the state witness? Wow. He had a private conversation with the district attorney. And, you know, once that came to light, of course, our attorneys asked for a mistrial, but he denied it. And so he's... Since then, he has retired and they reassigned our case to another judge. But somehow this same judge, Judge Jerry Baxter, has been allowed to remain on our case. We have no idea how this is happening. Yeah, even though he said to the jury before they delivered their verdict, whatever your verdict is, I will defend it until the day I die. Yes. So now we know that he can't be impartial on this <laughs> case. Um, and yet he remains in charge of it. That was just, there were so many examples of how his behavior and the prosecutors really um, slanted the jury's perception of the case. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that the fact that this case lasted eight months is just incredibly unusual in and of itself. Six months of that was prosecution witnesses compared to a few weeks of defense witnesses. Um, and so these are the, the, the imbalance. Um, it was that imbalance that I think enabled the convictions to play out as they did. And of course, intertwined with this entire story um, is the fact that uh, our country is built on, the, has been, uh, has a long history of a criminalization of black people people. And so we already have a justice system that is deeply discriminatory, particularly towards African Americans. And you have this, you know, playing out in the South with this white judge and the white governor on the face of it, just the optics of it, um, even just setting aside the education system part of it um, looks horrendous, right? <laughs> It does, and there was, at the same time, because the district attorney is black, um, there was, and the, you know, a lot of our elected officials in Atlanta are black, it's known as the black mecca. Uh, there was also a perception that this can't be a racial issue. That was something I think that you heard a lot, Shawnee. Right, yeah. and I've heard a lot about how it can't be a racial issue, and also how it was black on black crime, because right. all you saw in the news were black educators and it, it was almost in the sense of, look at what these black educators have done to these poor black students. And, and I think we've talked about how widespread this is, but over 40 states in this country have had cheating allegations. 14 of those states, it was considered to be widespread cheating. In Washington, D.C., there were 103 schools flagged for suspiciously high erasure. Thank you both so much for joining us today and good luck with the book. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having us. My guests have been Shani Robinson and Anna Simonton, co-authors of None of the Above, the Untold Story of the Atlanta Public Schools Cheating Scandal, Corporate Greed and the Criminalization of Educators. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written and executive produced by Sonali Kolhatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy Award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com, where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files.
Up next is an encore presentation of The Struggle with Alyssa with guest Teresa Rayford. Public Affairs Show is brought to you by a collective of woman-identified radio activists. This show gives a voice to those working for social justice and equality, both locally and globally, highlighting achievements made by women activists, scholars, and innovators, Bread and Rose's strive for excellent programming while still having fun. We here at KBU strive to give everyone a voice, especially those who don't get as many chances from corporate media. But for us to support these great shows, we need you, our listeners' support. Donate today at kboo.fm slash give. And besides supporting our local community radio, you get the chance to win a trip to our neighborhood. The Ultimate KBOO Neighborhood Experience Raffle Package includes several different gift cards to shops in our community, along with a meal and night stay right next door. Come explore what our community is like again by donating at kboo.fm slash give. See full rules and details at kboo.fm slash 2019raffle. KBOO Community Radio is a proud sponsor of the Clinton Street Resistance Series every Monday night at the Clinton Street Theater. Monday, March 4th, Clinton Street Resistance will screen The Great Muppet Caper, where Kermit the Frog, The Great Gonzo, and Fozzie Bear are reporters for the Daily Chronicle, traveling to Britain to report on the theft of the baseball diamond. This week's screening benefits The Circus Project. Again, that's The Great Muppet Caper, showing Monday, March 4th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information is available at kboo.fm on the right-hand side of the homepage under Community Events. <laughs> 